Good morning, Christ Church. Happy Labor Day weekend to you, and uh, for many of you, happy return of college football. And uh, I don't know if you were up late last night watching Texas, uh, but they won. They won well, as did my Kentucky Wildcats. So it was a good uh, evening for me and a good weekend overall to be starting college football. Um, Before the sermon, I want to put up a slide, and just to save the date, if you have not yet marked your calendars, let me encourage you to mark your calendar now for Parish Retreat. It'll be at the end of October, last weekend in October, and it's one of the most enjoyable things that we do as a parish because it is a whole weekend away with people from the 9 a.m. service, the 11 a.m. service, people you've maybe not interacted with before, uh, getting to share together. And so just a beautiful weekend. If you're new to the church, one of the the best ways I can say to get involved and to meet others. Uh, So mark your calendar for that weekend and more details uh, will be shared pretty soon. Let's pray together. Lord, may the words of my mouth The meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, a rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last week, we began a new series on Revelation. So if you've got your Bible, I want to encourage you to open up to Revelation 2. Or if you got a bulletin when you walked in, uh, there's a scripture insert for Revelation 2. And we're going to pick up this week right where we left off last week. And last week I said there were three scenes or three themes uh, that we need to keep in mind as we study Revelation. First, we need to remember Revelation, it's all about Christ. He is the center of this whole letter. Secondly, it's symbolic, and we talked about some of the symbolism this past week. And third of all, it's pastoral. And that last point, pastoral, it's where we enter the story today because we're going to be looking at the letters to the seven churches Revelation 2 and 3, John, who is our author, he's this theologian, this poet, but chiefly he's a pastor. He's received a message from Jesus, and he wants to pass this message on to these seven churches. So we're going to go into the second scene of Revelation today, the message to the churches. And as we do that, I want to add two more words uh, to your vocabulary. Keep these in your, like, how to understand Revelation toolkit that we're building out here. Uh, So two more words I want to add. The first is the word apocalypse. Apocalypse. And as soon as you hear that word apocalypse, you probably think the end of the world. That's what an apocalypse is. It means everything is done. You think of apocalyptic movies. You think of movies like maybe Apocalypse Now, or you think of The Matrix, or more recently, have you noticed that we are just obsessed with zombie movies, these like post-apocalyptic creatures that are going to come and eat everyone's brains? Like this is the end of the world. These are apocalyptic movies, but that's not the original meaning of the word. The word originally means, this word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. Apocalypsis, and I've said this before, but just to refresh us, apocalypsis, it literally means, it comes from two words, it means pulling back the covers on something. It's like there's something that's been covered up, and an apocalypsis, it pulls back the covers. So here's maybe some of the ways you can think about it. We've all seen The Wizard of Oz, or at least familiar with The Wizard of Oz, and that moment when they're standing before the wizard and Toto pulls back the curtain, and the one you're looking at up there, you find out is just a man over here behind the curtain. It's an apocalyptic moment, a pulling back of the curtain moment. Or maybe another way to think of it is an apocalypse, um, it's like getting a new vantage point. So maybe think of a time when you've been on an airplane, and if you're like me, you claim the window seat, right? It's, you, it's where you can kind of spread out. You don't have to fight for as much elbow room on the, the middle elbow space right there, and you get to look out the window. 
And you know that moment of taking off and looking out the stretched out city. Has anyone ever had this moment that I've had where you look down and you see a major traffic jam on I-35? And you see then a couple of miles up cars that have no idea what's coming their direction. And you're just imagining if I were in their shoes, I would be about to encounter such a huge frustrating moment. An apocalypse lifts you up, gives you God's perspective on something that you couldn't have otherwise seen. It reveals something to you, pulls the covers back. That's the first word, apocalypse. The second word is letter. When you think of the word letter, uh, you might think junk mail or spam or an overfull email inbox that you don't uh, ever get to all the things that you want to do. But when you receive a handwritten note in the mail, addressed to you, you read it because it's personal. It has details and intimacy, and it conveys relationship to you. Put these two words together, apocalyptic letter. What's going on here is revelation is a personal word to these seven churches, a word from Jesus to give them a zoomed-out perspective on their situation. And what Revelation wants to do is to say your everyday life, your eating, drinking, working, sleeping, investing, planning, dating, sometimes failing life, if you could only see, is actually caught up in this cosmic story. Every decision you make, every action that you go, you're entering into, all the courses of your life, you are part of God's dramatic saga, a saga more impressive than Lord of the Rings, more sprawling than the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You are part of this gigantic story where your life has meaning and significance. That's what this apocalyptic letter is showing. We need faith imagination. John wants to give us a greater imagination to pray and to imagine the world we live in. So we've got these letters into these seven churches, and they're all written to churches of the city. These are young Christians, and all of them are facing some form of difficulty. And you remember, seven is an important number for John that means complete. So in one sense, these are actually real and historic churches who are facing real things. And just a moment ago, we heard that uh, some of them are wrestling with the Nicolaitans, and we have no idea who these people are. We have no idea uh, some of the situation they're facing. So they, they're written, these seven letters are written to real churches, but the number seven also means this is just a, a sampling of all the churches worldwide ever. If you could put all the churches that have ever existed through the past two millennia in your hands and just sort of shake them out like dice, and seven came out, they would probably sound like these seven in Revelation, that every church is going to be wrestling with some of these different things. You can probably read some of these letters and you can think, well, that sounds like a Baptist. That sounds like a Catholic. I kind of see the Anglicans over there. Like, they represent God's church through all ages in history. And John is going to write to them, and there's a pattern that you need to know. I'm going to put it up here. This pattern is going to be the same pattern to every single church, and what's going to be significant is when one of these things gets changed or left out. So the pattern is Jesus will identify with the church, and he'll offer a comfort or an affirmation, a challenge and a correction, and then promised hope. And this week, we're going to look at those first three, and the next week, we'll look at the promised hope. And we'll begin in Revelation 2.1. Revelation 2.1 says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is Jesus identifying with the church. 
In each of the letters to the seven churches, it begins with this greeting, a particular greeting from Jesus. And this comes, this greeting comes right out of chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. In fact, we read it together last week. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. You remember Revelation is symbolic. The lampstands are the churches. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who walks among the churches. The seven stars, they represent the leader of the churches. Most likely not a pastor, but some guardian angel over the church. And what is being said here is Jesus is symbolically saying to the Ephesians, I I'm the one who holds the leadership of your church. I'm in control of your church, and I walk among you. I'm with you, Emmanuel, God with you. You can see in this chart, and I'm going to have a lot of charts today, so if you're wanting to take pictures, you can do that um, and go back and review it later. But these are the ways that all of the, uh, all of the seven letters begin. Again, this all comes out of Revelation 1, 13 through 16. Jesus speaking and first assuring every single church, your identity is not your own. Your identity is connected to me. I identify with you, the church. Why does he do this? Jesus wants to speak to every church and assure them no matter how good they are, no matter how good they think they are, no matter how far they've fallen away, he still identifies with them, that their identity comes from him. It's one of the most important things to realize, no matter how bad you think a church is, no matter how holy and exalted you think a church is, every church is a mixture of sinners and saints. In fact, all of us are mixtures of sinner and saint, and yet... Jesus identifies with us. This is the grace of God, his grace always coming to us first, to identify with us first. You probably remember uh, the book Screwtape Letters. It's one of my favorites. It's a conversation between these two demons, a fictional conversation, obviously fictional, I suppose, um, a fictional conversation between two demons about how to tempt a human. And one of the first letters, one of the things that the demon says is, if you really want to confuse your human, if you really want to confuse your human, get in his mind this idea of the communion of saints. And as he thinks about the communion of saints, he'll think about these Christians who are on fire for the Lord, charging into the dark places of society, and, um, and then have him go to a local church. And when he gets to a local church, these are C.S. Lewis's words, he gets to a local church and he'll see people with oily faces and squeaky shoes who can't sing on key, and a preacher who preaches too long. And have him put those two images together. And if you've sat near me in the front row, you've heard my preaching perhaps too long. You haven't heard my singing too loud off key. Others have up here. Um, this image, this dissonance between the church, this one holy, faithful, apostolic church, Catholic church, and these people right here. And yet Jesus says, I identify with you. You are my church. You are my body, not because of something special about you, but because I've chosen you. I am with you, and I walk among you. Christ Church, your identity, the identity of this body and your very identity is not your own. It's a given, a gift from our Lord Jesus. It's where this begins. He identifies with the churches. Then he gives a message to them, uh, which begins with the comfort so it would be Revelation uh, 2, verses 2 through 3. This comfort says, I know your deeds, you in Ephesus. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. You've tested those who claim to be apostles. They're not. You found them to be false. You've persevered. You've endured hardships for my name. You've not grown weary. 
When Jesus gives these comfort statements, he always begins with the phrase, I know. I know. Which when you are in a difficult moment, when you've been trying hard, when you think you're alone and no one else knows, imagine from the person you admire most, you respect most, you revere most, that the first words out of their mouth would be to you to say, I know what you've been going through. And I love you. And I bless you. I know what you have been going through. Jesus is delighted with the Ephesian church. They've worked hard. They've been patient under threat and persecution. They've drawn a clear line between those who are following Jesus and not. You can see how he speaks words of confirmation and affirmation to the other churches right here on this chart. As you've been faithful, I know you've been faithful in a faithless city. I know that you're a small minority, but you're still following me. I know that you've refused to deny me. There's only one church, Laodicea, the last one, that doesn't receive a, a, a word of comfort. That's a church where Jesus says, you're neither hot nor cold. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. They don't receive a word of comfort, that one. You know, so often when we pray, the substance of our prayers is, is this. God, I'm having a moment over here. Life is really overwhelming, and I don't know what to do, and I need help. You know, many pastoral meetings I've had over the years, what, what a pastoral meeting often amounts to is a person uh, sharing with them the difficulty they've been walking through, just giving me insight to what the challenges are that they've been facing and where they've been trying to be faithful to Jesus through the years. And what they want to know is, does anyone else know what it's like to be me? Does anyone else know what it's like to go through this hard situation, make the, the hard situation whatever it is, the rejection? The death, the sickness, the illness, the not being able to do what it is you want to do. Does anyone else know what it's like to go through what I go through? And here Jesus says, I know your deeds and I know how hard you're trying and you're faithful to me and I bless you. It's how he starts every one of these letters. Again, first of all, your identity comes from me and I bless you. I bless the work that you're doing right now. But then the pattern flips and he offers a challenge to most churches. Here's how the challenge goes. He says, yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent. Do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from this place. And just like there are those statements that begin, I know, all of these challenge statements begin, yet I hold this against you. You can see here in the Ephesian church, they, um, they did a lot of great things. They persevered. They were able to have doctrinal purity. And yet, there is this like inner heart that was missing. You know, I, I kind of think of the Ephesians as it's like rotted out wood. It looks so good and so strong on the outside, but internally, they're living off of a reputation. They don't have any heart for Jesus anymore at this point. Missing a spirit-filled life. And he gives them a severe warning. I will remove your lampstand. That means I will unchurch you. I will scatter you. I won't hold you together anymore. It's a sober warning that we need to hear. No church is perfect. No pastor is perfect. No person is perfect. We are all a mixture of sinner and saint until Christ returns. You can see the words of warning he writes here to the rest of the churches. Some of them have become indifferent to heresy, some of them comfortable in idolatry, some of them tolerating sexual immorality, apathetic, substituting material riches for life in the spirit. 
if I had to summarize these challenges of Jesus, it's that people live, the churches that live on reputation leads to moral failure. It's often the case in church history. It's still the case in our age today. Just think of our last couple of decades here in the American church. Think of some of the moral failures that you have seen in the life of the American church. And we could go down just a litany of lists, but most recently what comes to mind is abuse, abuses of power. Think of um, just a, a complete um, enmeshment uh, with endorsement in politics and military, an indifferent stance towards loving the poor. I would say most visibly, though, what we've seen in the church, perhaps over the last 20, 30 years, is an accommodation in sexual ethics, so that church and world look almost co-equal. And maybe this is always the case, but it, it is particularly in the American church something that is being wrestled out right now. And this church, Christ Church, stands, if you've not known this before, heard this before, stands with global Anglicans in the historic church, saying that God has always called all Christians everywhere, every Christian, to a life of faithfulness with regard to sexuality, which means that sexuality is reserved for the context, the covenant, the gift of marriage between husband and wife. And anything outside of this is just not aligned with God's will. Whatever it might be, whether pornography or an affair or hookup culture, whether same, opposite sex, whatever it might be is not in line with God's gift for human flourishing in the context of marriage. And yet today there's an enormous social pressure on Christians in Austin to simply agree with and say, isn't that just an antiquated position? Like that was maybe good a long time ago, but it's no longer relevant the challenge that Christians face in America, particularly in Austin, in the face of growing social pressure is this. Can we continue to articulate a winsome and beautiful vision of human flourishing, which values the whole body, which values men and women and children, which holds up the goodness and the life of marriage and of human flourishing, I believe the way to do this will be primarily not just by speaking, but by showing a better way. The challenge we will face will be building communities of grace that uphold marriages, bless families, support widows and single people, both relationally and, I believe, church even financially. That there are particular challenges that those uh, who are widows and single face financially, especially in retirement years, that churches are called to stand together and show these beautiful communities of everyone caring for one another. Where there has been hurt and despair to work towards healing and redemption, this pressure we face to one where Jesus would challenge us to hold the truth and to embody the truth in rich and vibrant communities. And Jesus has spoken to the churches. He has identified with them. And then he's given them this word of comfort and this word of challenge. And the easy thing to do is to think, what, do, what word of challenge, what word do we need to hear right now? But, um, but I want to recall, again, first of all, his grace always comes first. Grace before law, his goodness before obedient response is ever given. That's always the pattern. One of the most uh, helpful discipleship tools I've ever seen, I've come across on, is this. I think I came across it in my college days and, um, and used it with my college students quite a bit. And what it's saying is, what does it mean to receive both the challenges and the comforts of Jesus in a grace-filled way? 
Not in a way that is trying to work to earn Jesus' salvation, but in a way that says, Jesus, because you love me, out of gratitude to you, I gladly give back my life to you. You can see the X, Y axis. Um, when there is much comfort received from Jesus, when there's much challenge received from Jesus, you live in this growing faith reality. There's no comfort, no challenge. There would be problems all around. Start in this bottom right corner. Um, people who uh, are really prone, like challenge-oriented, sometimes if you're really challenge-oriented, you need to hear the comforts of Jesus. You probably have a tendency to move towards some sort of pharisaical faith. If I just do enough good things, I can be saved. My wife and I were talking about this, and um, this is both of us, but especially her as well. She is uh, an Enneagram 2. She's a helper. She is a nurse practitioner and also a high achiever, has her doctorate. She was the youngest uh, faculty member at the University of Kentucky in her department. And when you give her a challenge, like before it's out of your mouth, she's like, I'm on it. I'm doing it. People are moving into town. I'm coming to help them move. I'm sending them Tiff's treats. It's frankly kind of infuriating to live with because none of the rest of us in the family have an opportunity to do and to serve anyone because she's so good at it. We were talking about this and she said, I don't need to hear more challenges from Jesus. At some points I do, yes, but what I need to hear is, beloved, I love you. You're doing enough. I need to hear the comfort of Jesus. I need to sit with him in prayer and in just time alone with the Lord and hear you are complete in me. I need to be recalibrated up towards more of his comfort. And some of you need that. Some of you are just total to the wire servants and you just need to hear God loves you. He blesses you. He gave himself for you. Others of you are more comfort uh, oriented, more apt to hear the words of Jesus, to sit with him in fact, many people who come to Christ Church because we believe and often preach that it's okay to not be okay, which is absolutely true. It's okay to rest. It's okay to have a season where you just let the Lord heal you, which is totally appropriate. And there are times where we need this. I remember when I was 22, I was traveling down the West Coast, and I stopped for a couple of days with a group called the Prodigal Project, just some, uh, some men who all had been incarcerated and had recently gotten out and were trying to follow Jesus together. They did not need more words of challenge at that point in their life. They just needed to hear words of comfort, that they were accepted by God. But at some point in their faith journeys, they would need to start hearing some sort of challenge. They would need to be encouraged to, what does it mean to follow Jesus faithfully? If you only hear the comfort of Jesus, but you never allow him to challenge or correct you, your faith remains stunted. It won't grow. It's like a child refusing to grow up. If he cannot challenge you, you'll never hear his comforts. If he cannot comfort you, you won't hear his challenges. So this week, Christ Church, my encouragement to you, sit with these letters from Revelation. Soak them up. Get this God's eye perspective on your situation in life. Let him bring his own comfort, his own challenge to you as you need it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.